Hello and everyone and welcome to the Campaign Podcast where we chat about advertising, media marketing. I'm your host, Omar Oaks. We'll be speaking later in this episode to Brian Weezer, one of the industry's most prominent analysts, who will be breaking down what's happening globally in terms of the trends we're seeing as a result of this pandemic crisis. But first, to help me make sense of what's going on in this week's news, it's Campaign's consulting editor, Jeremy Lee. Jeremy, how are you today? Hi, Emma. I'm very well. Thank you very much. And you're looking well. We're actually doing, we're recording this remotely, but we're, we're actually looking at each other over Google Meet, which is exciting. And um, <laughs> what, what have you been up to this week? Uh, I can't say a huge amount, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm enjoying the, 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 the few freedoms we've got. So, um, yeah, that's about it, really. Nothing too exciting. Uh, you're 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 a man of mystery. I like it, uh, or, or maybe maybe like me, your life's just not that interesting. Yeah, exactly. maybe that. <laughs> um, there's a there's a lot to talk about. There's always a lot to talk about um, this week during this crisis, where um, things are happening in the ad industry. And last week um, we spoke a bit about new commercial arts, the new agency on the scene from the ex Adam and Eve pair, David Golding and James Murphy. And look what they've gone and done. They've won themselves some new business straight out of the gate. They've won Halifax. They've grabbed it from their old agency, Adam and Eve DDB. Jeremy, what's going on here? Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, I think that, um, you know, they, they've worked on the Lloyds Banking Group for, God, best part of 20 years, I should imagine. Even, I think they worked on it when they were back at Rainey Kelly and they won it at Adam and Eve, as you said. And then the first piece of business they win at their new agency, oh, they've stolen it from Adam and Eve DDB. Um, I think that it's it's quite surprising to me. I think it's it's surprising in that, as a statement, they've, they've just robbed their old agency. And also the fact they're moved without a pitch suggests that um, perhaps there's more going on on this uh, account move than meets the eye. There was no pitch, it moved. Uh, and I think Adam and Eve, DDB, well, the work wasn't great, can feel slightly aggrieved by it, perhaps. Why slightly aggrieved? And I'm not suggesting there was any wrongdoing, but it just gives the impression there was no due process and the fact that you know, the agency, um, NCA had only been going a few days and then, oh, look, a, a, a bank, a bank of all things has moved its business into it without a pitch which doesn't seem well i don't know it it just looks a bit a bit strange really Uh, i'm not suggesting anything was wrong but um it's uh it's just an odd move really Mm. and perhaps not the start the nca wanted they perhaps they could have you know if they wanted to make a big impression perhaps stealing an account from another agency following a pitch would have been a, a more potent statement of intent well, I mean, it comes down to, you know, James Murphy and David Golding built a hugely successful agency um, in Adam and Eve and then sold it to Omnicom. Um, they've had a non-compete clause, which they abided by for 12 months after they left Omnicom. And they have obviously, now that they are open for business, um, the marketing director at Lloyd's Banking Group, Catherine Kehoe, she knows David and James very well, is clearly a huge fan of what they're doing. And so, you know, isn't her right? She's trying to make the best marketing decision for her business and she thinks these are the best people to work with. So what's the problem? No, no, totally. I think you're right. And I think part of it is that Catherine Kehoe took on this new role of chief customer officer. And the part of that is a, a more integrated role looking at not just brand, but also customer experience. And I think this, the, the stall that NCA set out is not just about, you know, the old John Lewis big TV ads that they were famous for. It's much more about the whole integrated journey. And Halifax were looking for that. Catherine Keogh was looking for that. And that's what they've appointed them. Mm. Um, it's a good point you make, actually, because... Um... It's slightly more nuanced, I guess, than just taking the creative account. Um, they actually had a competitive pitch for a Lloyd's banking group. Lloyd's is obviously the owner of Halifax. Um, there was a pitch for a customer experience brief uh, in a process run by Alchemists, um, the intermediary um, that Angus Crowther, formerly of Oyster Catchers, is part of. Does this signal, do you think, Jeremy, that there's something more happening with Lloyd's banking group, i.e. Lloyd's Bank? There could be other accounts in play that could move. I think with Halifax, there was a, a certain problem and there wasn't a coherent customer experience journey that they that they acknowledged. And I, I think, well, I understand that the rest of Lloyd's Banking Group has given assurances to Adam and Eve DDB that the business is safe for the time being, which will surprise some people because I think that, you know, 
once one bit goes, the rest tends to. But I think that on this occasion, Adam and DDB have been thrown a bone and told that they're okay with the rest of the business for the time being. Jeremy, what, are you, what, are, what were your favourite Halifax ads from the years and what are you hoping to see with new advertising? Well, I, I remember that the, the history of Halifax goes back quite a long way. I remember, God, I must have been at school at the time that there was a, they, had a, they had a choir that made up a house, a Halifax House for Mortgages, and it featured staff. And that was actually a, a, a trope that was revisited by Adam and Eve DDB in its first work. I think obviously the most famous ads from Halifax and one's featuring Howard Brown, who was one of the, uh, the cashiers at Branch and made an unlikely celebrity uh, of Howard Brown uh, singing Who Gives You Extra. And it was done by Delaney Lunn, Knox Warren, and, and in a strange twist, Richard Warren is the chief marketing officer of Lloyds Bank Group and was instrumental in appointing um, uh, NCA, and he was one of the founders of Delaney Lamb Knox Warren. So what goes around comes around and all that. So I think I think that Halifax, in more recent years, I don't think Adam and Eve DDB has created anything particularly memorable. Uh, it won't be famous for its work. So I think there are big hopes that NCA can perhaps do something slightly more spectacular, perhaps to get Howard Brown back, who knows? Well, I want to know where is he now. That's a that's a feature for you, Jeremy. Where what what Howard did next? That's a brilliant idea. We could we could resurrect old uh, old unfamous brown spoken and find out what they're doing. I imagine most of them are not Howard necessarily, but most of them are drinking in the street. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope not, unless that's what they want to do. But um, uh, yeah, I'm just thinking of all these great brand spokespeople like the R White's Secret Lemonade Drinker going down the stairs, um, the Tango Man. <laughs> was that Elvis Costello's dad, though? Was it? Oh, White's drinker. Yeah, it was. Elvis Costello's dad. Yeah, not even joking. Well, is was he just a you know an uh, an actor in his own right, or was it just somebody for a laugh? Thought let's get his dad. No, he was, he was a musician in his own right. So he's the one who's also saying, "I'm a lemonade drinker." And interestingly, um, I think. Uh, his his uh, Elvis Costello's son works at works at Media Vet. Anyway, it's irrelevant. But yeah, there's lots, there's <laughs> lots of links from Media. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? No, he did. Yeah, no, absolutely. He, did. he definitely did. He definitely did. Tony Blackburn's son works at Habas as well. So there's, there's lots of. That's another feature we should do. Celebrities asking work or daughters who work in advertising. Well, I think I think the the list might be too long to do a single feature on that. Uh, but it's not what you know, is it? <laughs> fascinating you you're getting high level info listeners on um the, the ins and outs of the ad industry here um one um other huge accounts move um or potential move that we didn't discuss on the show last time was walkers um which split with abbott mead vickers bbdo after 22 years um this is absolutely huge walkers owned by pepsico they said that they wanted to seek a fresh perspective in its marketing uh, which is fine, but you, you suppose after 22 years, at what point does it become not fresh? And the question is, why now? Um, this happened, I guess, two weeks ago as we're talking. Um, what's the latest with this, Jeremy? Has anything moved on since? Not that I know of. Um, I think that, you know, as you say, 22 years, it's the third account that AMV's lost in as many years, which has been a long-standing relationship. So obviously they, um, they lost, but I think BT last year, Camelot the year before, and these are you know these are huge accounts. And AMV was always known for having these sort of deep, long-lasting relationships, and Walkers is particularly one of them. And while they weren't responsible for introducing Gary Lineker, now they're, they're into the ads. You know, it's been an incredibly successful and long-running campaign. I think I think the IPA cites it as one of one of the most successful um, celebrity campaigns of all time. So what it means for AMV? Well, it's just another. Bit of bad news, which no, in a year which saw them toppled from the top of the um, Nielsen Billings table, and what it means for Gary Lineker, well, we we can only speculate. But the fact that they said they want a fresh approach suggests that a sixty-year-old football pundit might not be the person they want. <laughs> um, football fans who watch matches today might say a similar thing. I don't know. Um, um, it, as you say, uh, Walker's actually um, first enlisted said presenter services in 1995 and AMV's had this account since 98 
Um, so some very long relationships. I've, I've heard off the record from different agencies that there could be further accounts which could be moving. We did a lot of stories earlier in the year, last year, about VW, for example, kind of doing procurement-led things, trying to save money. I mean, what's the deal with PepsiCo? What 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 is driving all of this, do you think? Well, I don't know, but I mean, if, if that is the case, then PepsiCo is looking beyond just walkers. I mean, that's huge news for BBDO, which is to which it's aligned globally and which has had the account god for more than 30 years i should imagine i mean they were responsible for the famous for famously setting michael jackson on fire for pepsi weren't they um so it's if this is the start of it well i should imagine bbdo and omnicom must be slightly worried what's gonna follow mm. uh, we don't mean to pick on poor old omnicom by the way talking about two other agencies losing big work and um, it's just a, <laughs> just sometimes the news happens like that um and all, you you actually wrote a column about this um jeremy which was very interesting um you connected two i suppose very prominent um and i guess historic things that have happened one is walkers moving which you just talked about um but the other is um quite a big departure from bartle bogle hegarty um explain yeah so john pepia who joined bbh and was most happy he joined bbh in uh, 1995 the same year that gary lineker was signed up by um by walkers uh been there for 20 well he'd been there for 25 years he was part of the management team who in 2010 2011 won campaigns agency of the year two years running um they sort of saw it through a really rough time after the last recession uh and he is the last of those sort of key members of staff uh and he was made redundant um as part of a big restructure that's going on there which i think is going to see quite a lot of people leave and it just seems like the end of an era and he was big part of the agency. I haven't been there 25 years. It leaves a hole that can't really be filled, I don't think. I mean, it's, it will be a very different agency. It'll be a very, I dare say the word average, but it'll just be like another other agency um, because he was such, such a distinctive, prominent and much-loved figure. Mm. Um, does it, I suppose, does it ring true for you because you feel like it's, an, it's totemic of a changing of the guard situation where you've got these kind of big figures in the ad industry who we're seeing less and less of. I think you're probably right. I think those days of having these sort of gregarious front men, and they were mainly men, um, has probably come to an end. It's a sh- and, you know, and I, 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 I mourn that slightly. Um, you know, perhaps there's a new era of professionalism. I'm not saying John wasn't professional, but you know, a more an era of it becoming a bit more corporate and a bit more, um, a bit more social. But those big personalities who were characters and were fun and embodied what the agency stood for aren't actually necessary. Where you can just present it on a deck rather than having a person that personifies the brand doing it for you. Mm. And finally, one story, and it prefaces nicely my interview coming up with the very wise Brian Weezer from WP's Group M, um, who's discussing a lot of these trends. Um, Citigroup this week said that the advertising market is set for a V-shaped recovery. They say that this is in response to various forecasts we've seen, which have been, quite frankly, um, disastrous in terms of um, how sluggish the ad recovery is going to be next year compared to this year's drop. Um, Citigroup actually quite sanguine. Um, they say equally large proportion of advertisers signal that cuts are likely to be temporary and that product launches and ad spend will resume. Um, I actually wrote a story this week that said on the digital ad market side, um, key metrics such as cost per mills and cost per clicks are actually back to where they were pre-lockdown, which I guess is a cause for optimism. Jeremy, does this make you feel enthused? You're not optimistic that maybe things will recover quickly? Yeah, of course it does. I think anything that's good news, we should we should seize and hold close to our hearts. I think, um, let's hope so. Um, there's going to be quite a lot of bad news in the next couple of months. So I think if we can see some good news and that the economy starts to pick up, the ad business starts to pick up, people start getting, you know, being employed again, that's going to be good news. I celebrate that. Mm. Um, certainly, it's one of those things where, you know, we're just talking about BBH is one of many agencies who are restructuring and having a very difficult time. But at the same time, things, I suppose, could bounce back quite strongly. And it's always difficult to, to marry those two things, isn't it? Well, I think that there's, you know, there's a lot of people have got money in their pocket that they want to spend. They haven't been able to spend perhaps on 
you know, on their on their on their normal because they're going to be able to sort of buy in beer and wine and food and stuff like that. But the people want to go out and spend their money, so there's obviously a latent desire to to get the economy moving again. Hopefully, obviously, some people won't be able to because they may not have jobs in a, in a few months. But hopefully. I'm going to go with City Open. Let's be let's be optimistic about this. Yes, optimism, and that nicely brings us to uh, my interview with Brian Weezer from WP's Group M. Stick around because some very interesting insights from that. And after that, we'll be back with Jeremy to talk about this week's ads. And I'm here today with Brian Weezer, Global President of Business Intelligence at WPP's Group M. Hello, Brian. How are you? Where does lockdown find you? Hi, Omar. Thanks for having me. I am here live from Portland, Oregon, where I've been in lockdown for, well, about the same time as you all have in the UK. Sure. And it, it feels, well, it has been a very long time, but it feels like years almost. Um, I, and I was keen to get you on the podcast. Um, you have been at Group M for about a year now. Uh, you were before a senior analyst at Pivotal Research Group, and you were agency side before. And I guess it's fair to say that you're one of um, the most prolific and well-known industry analysts out there. You've been at Group M for about a year now. How's it been being back at agency side? What's the main difference as opposed to being outside? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 always interesting. Um, you know, the differences are best expressed, I think, in terms of the the breadth of what I have to focus on um, versus the depth. Obviously, there's a lot of depth that we go into and can go into, but in terms of my own uh, time, you know, when you're an analyst covering you know 15 or 20 stocks, you're going to focus on the things that cause the stocks to move, and that's going to you know, it's not narrow but it's relatively narrow instead in in this role i care about hundreds of media owners around the world i care about scores of countries um, and i care about hundreds of marketers that i'm trying to understand as best as possible and there's only 24 hours a day last i checked um although <laughs> during this lockdown it sometimes feels like more yeah. uh, and so um, there are some differences in terms of, 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 of where I concentrate my um, uh, concentrate my attention. But at the end of the day, the similarities are that I'm trying to understand the connections between so geopolitics, domestic politics in different countries, tie that to macroeconomic activities, try to understand how corporate actors behave inside of that, uh, and then understand what that means for um, advertising markets around the world. It's really interesting. And we speak only days after a major report, a global report by Walk, um, who forecasts that global ad spend will fall by 8.1% this year um, to just over half a billion dollars. And that's actually not as bad as the 12.7 contraction we saw in 2009. Um, so, Brian, why could it be, despite all the doom and gloom we're seeing right now, why do you think that? the current crisis might not be so bad as it was over a decade ago. Yeah. Well, let's start with what the doom and gloom is or should be. Um, you know, in 2009, and really leading up to 2008, you had a number of issues that were bleeding into a liquidity crisis, first and foremost, that impacted the world's largest companies and starting with financial institutions. And that had an impact on large companies uh, that played out over months, and that then further played out um, by impacting smaller businesses and certainly impacted people. And it just took time. And I think that as companies set and reset their budgets, um, I think they were very circularly responding to that negativity. And you know, I, I, I think that that um, created a, a, a significant economic decline. Um, and, you know, relatively modest um, advertising decline, considering how bad um, the economy was. Here, what we have is, in some ways, a more severe economic decline that was brought about by this very, very sudden change and transition of economic activity that, first of all, hit mostly smaller businesses and arguably mostly businesses who weren't doing as much advertising and then laterally impacting larger businesses, but larger businesses really, you know, who are better able to withstand uh, the short-term disruptions 
that come from shutting down an economy for a period of time. Now, we have not, uh, to be clear, uh, come up yet with our uh, forecasts uh, for the global advertising market. Um, you'll see that uh, in a couple of weeks for our, our, our new updates. Um, so not clear yet where we'll come out um, with respect to how much um, worse or how much less bad <laughs> um, this era will be versus 2009. Um, I'd add that the other difference is that, as I mentioned, small businesses have been um, disproportionately impacted, especially those that are retail skewed. And one thing that I think is happening is that those small businesses who are often you know, in a desperate uh, situation, struggling to survive, finding that the only way to keep their businesses going is to transition part of the business online. Um, and in a sense, what we're seeing is a business transformation by these smaller businesses bringing forward their businesses by several years. I, I use the example of, you know, here in Portland, I, uh, we love our coffee and there's a roaster I like to go to to buy a $5 cup of coffee. Since they closed, I've just been getting them to send me $75 bags of beans, which I'm ordering over the web. And I have to imagine I'm not, I'm not the only one doing this. They seem to have a system and a process down. And presumably this roaster is now more aggressively trying to sell their beans uh, on the internet. And whether that's happening or not, I don't know. But we do know, we are seeing many examples of small businesses accelerating their presence online. Shopify's data is probably the best illustration of this, where they've just had a fantastic um, period of business growth. Um, I don't think there's any reason to believe that the longer term trajectory that they're setting up goes away anytime soon. And a business that's transitioning its business from a physical environment to a digital one probably will spend money to support their business with advertising, um, especially if they're a small business and maybe they weren't doing as much digital advertising before. So that's probably another factor that's that's helping. Again, we're, we're a few weeks away from being able to say um, what our view is on you know, how this year will fare versus um, you know, 2009. And I think it's also important to note that um, we'll see very different reactions by country. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, it is different, um, but certainly worth making the reference point. And um, just on that point, um, you were actually quoted, Brian, uh, in this walk report, and um, you said that opportunities can actually come from this crisis, both for advertisers and media owners. And um, you said, I'm not going to do an impression, by the way, but this is just your words. Every brand should be questioning assumptions about their company's competitive position. What are the ways in which you can reinvent the category? Um, and I want you to expand more on that, if you could. What would you expect you know, good chief marketing officers or marketing directors or even CEOs that are focusing on their brands? What would you expect these people to have been doing now during this crisis? Yeah, well, I mean, for, first of all, I think that this is a, a period where resets are available. Um, certainly the ways in which, and it'll vary by category, different consumers want to buy products can change. I think there may be categories or segments of consumers who are not going to use digital uh, tools um, clearly will um, demonstrate that. I mean, food delivery is is a great example. Um, I, it's possible that there's a new plateau for um, uh, for e-commerce based uh, grocery shopping. Um, it, it was previously really you know well held back before, but now I think it will accelerate um, uh, off of a new higher base and across a wider range of consumers. So, what does that mean? If you are a marketer who is in the food category, for example, um, I, you know, think of another example. Uh, I, I'm not going to be getting to Paris anytime soon, and I was going to say Michelle Coulisel, uh, you know, as a, a chocolatier. Um, guess what? I could buy their stuff online. Who knew? <laughs> Just never, never occurred to me. And I'd like to think of myself as someone who not never. Uh, have held back from buying on the web. So maybe I'm going to buy it even more. I mean, as much as I like a $10, 10-pound bars of chocolate, I uh, can only have so many of them, but now I can get them anytime. Never occurred to me. So I, I, I think that um, in any given category, 
I, I think that it, it's important to just reassess every assumption that's been made about what consumers want, what they're willing to do, um, how you can engage with them. Um, I, I think that the, the world has kind of opened up. Now, the other thing is that it's safe to say that if there is economic decline, uh, in general, most marketers will be weak in their businesses and you will see um, softer spending from many of them. And that's exactly what presents the opportunity for a marketer who recognizes there's what the average company will do. And that probably opens up the opportunity. If you are not average, um, try to find new opportunities. Just, just question the assumptions about why people make the decisions they make how they'll make them and then how your business is organized and how dependent should you be on intermediaries versus selling direct um all these things that i think were maybe a bit more theoretical before um certainly brought top of mind by uh the rise of direct consumer brands over the past um several years but maybe you know as i found direct consumer brands really weren't that big it really mm. wasn't impacting categories as much as i think maybe some people thought, well, all of those concepts, all of those ideas, I think have still laid the groundwork for how marketers uh, can engage with consumers. Um, you know, another good example is uh, thinking about ways to stay in, uh, you know, connected to consumers. Um, email as a, a ridiculously effective platform, um, not going away, <laughs> obviously. Um, but it is, is a good example if you can find content to, um, you know, engage with consumers and, and maybe it's been an underinvested medium for many, um, you know, podcasts. I mean, clearly we're doing one. I think it's, it's been an yeah. explosion in them. Um, are there different ways that marketers can use, uh, their own branded content, uh, on narrow topics to engage with consumers? Again, I'm just saying that I think that it's a good time to, just question every single assumption about how you engage with consumers, what your product features are, how it's distributed, um, and what your long-term relationship is with customers. And how do you see what's happening now in terms of the transformation? Do you see the pandemic as an acceleration of longer-term trends towards digital and more direct commerce or e-commerce selling? Or do you think it's actually flipped a switch in a lot of consumers' minds to act differently, uh, i.e. not an accelerant, but more of a, uh, a behavior changer? Oh, both. I mean, I think that, um, and it's, a lot of this has yet to be you know, reinvented in, in, in a sense. Um, I think that, as I say, consumers may look for different bundles of goods. If, if we go through this period of time where our habits have been altered in a pretty dramatic way. What do we return to? So whatever the frequency was with which we were going to restaurants or going out to bars or, or whatever, um, you know, especially when it comes to engaging with people, um, large numbers of people, those habits won't return right away. We'll do things differently for some period of time until there's a vaccine that's widely distributed. And that opens up new opportunities as well. Um, what specifically we'll do? I mean, again, that's to be invented. And at the same time, I think there is an acceleration of uh, certain kinds of activities. So, like I say, e-commerce um, is going to be, you know, at a permanently higher plateau. I suspect um, growth will continue off of this base that uh, is being newly established. I mean, the new data for the UK, I think, that out just a few days ago or last week was was around 30%, I think, of, uh, of retail sales, as, as ONS defines it, uh, through e-commerce. I mean, mm. that's up from about 20% a year earlier. Um, I mean, maybe it doesn't say 30% because so much of other retail activity uh, fell away, but I think the absolute levels are probably the new base. So, yeah, I think that on the one hand, there's this opportunity for new behaviors to take root that will persist over time and provide a, a new plateau. Um, and, and so I guess it's both is this uh, new behaviors and an accelerant. And it was actually a particularly interesting earnings season um, for the last quarter, where we saw that a lot of international brands were talking about their responses to COVID-19. And obviously, marketing um, is a big part of that. Um, what were the most striking trends that you saw 
um, for marketing and media activity for the major brands? I think the most striking activity, um, you know, probably the, uh, the well, I think the repetitiveness of, of, uh, of the messaging of we're here for you was uh, um, probably the most striking thing. Um, I, you know, but I, I, I think that the, the, the better examples um, and, and certainly the more durable ones are the examples of, of companies finding ways to transition um, their businesses. So, you know, I think of um, a lot of the retailers that had to try to find ways to survive. Uh, you know, here in the U.S., um, Best Buy, a great example, um, they, they were not deemed to be essential by many governments uh, uh, where shutdowns were occurring. And so half of the stores, sorry, with all of the stores um, shut down essentially for half of the quarter, they managed to transition essentially all of their business to uh, e-commerce and a, a, a buy online pickup in-store curbside. Which is pretty amazing when you think about it. Um, I think they were able to retain north of 80% of the revenue, um, but with a radically different business model. Um, I mean, there are plenty of other examples like that, but I think that that's the sort of that's that's one that really really stands out to me. Um, you know, similarly, I think automotive companies finding ways to push, you know, uh, different ways to do test drives. Um, different ways to showcase their their car features um, to consumers who weren't going to go to a dealership in a, in a conventional way. Um, uh, you know, I think a lot of this really ties into the um, changing retail experience in a world where you can't, you know, experience uh, retail in a, in a conventional way. It's probably the, the thing that stood out to me the most. And um, what about for streaming as well? Um, you know, the Netflix subscriber numbers were, I think, even bigger than a lot of people thought they would be um, as more people stay at home and maybe consume more TV and give Netflix a chance if they, they're one of those few people that hadn't already. Um, what do you, what, what are the hopes for media going forward as, as more people consume connected TV and uh, non-unfunded streaming as well? Yeah, well, I mean, that's another thing that certainly maybe wasn't a surprise, but seeing, you know, higher levels of, of TV consumption, I guess, was to be expected when you have more people stuck at home. Um, what will be interesting is whether or not this creates a new plateau for the non-ad supported and streaming services, um, Netflix among them. You know, I, I, I do think that um, uh, consumer dependence on these non-ad supported services is going to be one of the more pronounced trends that probably persists it's it's going to vary by country of course um but i think that whereas we've seen an increase in uh uh consumption it, it's not necessarily going to go to the ad support fund so that will have all sorts of interesting implications on using different tools and tactics to find audiences um the idea that if let's just say the recent frequency potential of traditional ad-supported television and conventional ways of buying that inventory uh, is actually constrained going forward if, if in fact, the streaming services take a growing share of consumption and limit the reach of the traditional um, uh, traditional forms of ad-supported television, then this is where um, newer tactics, better research, better measurement will really matter because I think it's going to be increasingly important to find different ways to Know, costly extent reach across the medium. So what do you think we're likely to see as um, looking forward to um, brighter days ahead? What do you think we're likely to see as marketers turn on the marketing tap again? Do you see prospects for a so-called V-shaped recovery where things pick up quite quickly? Um, or do you think that might happen more in digital versus above the line traditional media? What do you think is going to happen? At this moment in time, we have to assume that the economy is going to be weak in most countries around the world this year. Um, if there, we are still in the middle of the first wave. We have not yet completed it, and there probably will be second waves in many countries. We are seeing it in South Korea, in Singapore, in um, Japan. We've seen. Uh, waves of activity in countries which 
manage this process pretty well from the outset. So it's hard to imagine that the country's hardest hit, UK, Germany, US, won't experience something similar. And so how that will play into the economy remains to be seen, right? If, if everything was back to normal and nobody got infected the second half of the year, sure, you could see this V-shaped recovery, but I don't think that's at all likely. So I think that what we're likely to see is something that's very prolonged. And so I think that, you know, it's hard to say what marketers will do and maybe better to think what they should do. Um, what they Again, what they will do is they'll probably look for ways to reduce spending wherever they can. But what they, I think, should do is take a step back and look for ways to reinvent how they're doing what they're doing. How are they organizing their own businesses to be as efficient as possible? Um, are they being as holistic as they can be in managing their budgets? Are they optimizing forests rather than trees, as the example I use? Are they making sure that take the working and non-working spend, as many marketers like to divide it up, are they managing those budgets in a holistic way or are they keeping them separate? And if they're keeping them separate, are they really as efficient as they could be if they were managed in an integrated manner? I mean, it's an important question that I think marketers need to be asking themselves. They need to further ask, you know, what is their product offering going to look like in terms of a world where, mark, where consumers probably want to either reduce what they're spending um, or they want to substantially increase the value they're receiving and they want to change the ways in which they're acquiring the products or goods and the way in which they're engaging in relationships with consumers. So I, I come back to this point of, you know, marketers should still assume that the world will change in very significant ways. We're not going back to a normal. The economy will probably be pretty weak. It may take a while to get back to normal again until after there is a, a vaccine that's widely distributed. And even then, there'll still be so many consequences yet to play out. And there is, of course, one huge marketing event um, that's going to happen this year. Um, and one marketer, if I can call him that, is going to be very busy. And that's um, President Donald Trump. The last presidential election four years ago, I think, um, I don't have the figures to hand, but um, it was huge amounts of record spending. Um, what do you think is likely to happen this year? Is it going to be more, even more of a transition to Facebook, social media ads? Or are we still going to see huge, huge numbers for television? Yeah, well, I think we'll, we'll certainly see more spending on digital, but it seems to be that the most effective way to drive people to vote has been television. And so that's where the bulk of the spending probably continues to go when it comes to the U.S. elections. Digital media primarily has been used to fundraise and to focus on really narrow slices of, of the population. But again, you need these broader um, numbers of people to turn up to vote. And uh, television is still really unparalleled in that. And, and you know, if, if we go back to the macroeconomic conditions, if you believe that um, um, you know, the dominant categories of uh, local television, namely automotive and retail, are going to be pretty weak this year, um, probably good bargains will be had on a relative basis. Of course, you know, we've seen so far, at least in 2019, fundraising, um, which is the best proxy for growth in spending is probably plus 80 percent over 2018 and 2016 levels if that's the proxy for what we'll see in terms of um, spending growth on advertising it's not as if uh local television will be uh very cheap in those swing states either mm. um definitely on to watch going forward um and i guess finally um, we talked a lot about um money moving towards e-commerce and digital um i get the strong impression that amazon google facebook these these tech titans they're just going to emerge out of the other side of this crisis just in a much stronger position than they were before um do you agree with that and what are the implications for marketers yeah i think in general it does seem very likely i mean when you look at um Again, as sellers of advertising and with a, a small business skew relative to a lot of other sellers, again, paradoxically, as weak as small businesses are, they're going to be disproportionately dependent on, on advertising, I think, to support their transitions as businesses. So that's going to help um, Google and Facebook um, as uh, sellers of advertising. For large brands, I think their utility is relatively unchanged, though. So. 
that's probably you know net helpful um, um, for them. Uh, and and for Amazon, I mean, certainly it's a, the largest uh, e-commerce company, uh, clearly a beneficiary, uh, just as, as a place that people are going to buy more and more of their products. You know, and I, I, I think that a bigger issue is that larger companies tend to get larger. Um, there really hasn't been anything to get in the way of that um, uh, in any meaningful way. Uh, so I do think that um, they probably do come out. Um, of, uh, of the crisis in, in a strong position. Mm. Unless, of course, um, antitrust um, comes knocking at the door, but we'll see well, whether that and happens. Even then, doesn't doesn't and, look likely. But even then, I mean, again, I think the, the, the combination of large companies that they would represent would still get larger. And I think that even that's a paradox of, of antitrust situations that it may actually make that collection of companies even more important. I mean, just look what happened with telecom. In the United States, um, when um, uh, you know AT and T was broken up, mm. well, what happened was arguably the successor to AT and T became even bigger. Well, that was actually well, it's it's cited as a reason why that was such a good reason to break up AT and T because it ended up creating um, new companies, which although they were big collectively, um, they created more shareholder value, more choice for consumers. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that that that's certainly an important point to consider. But I, I'm making the point that it's not as if um, you would expect that the antitrust behavior would would all of a sudden create a golden age for small companies. Mm. It's definitely interesting because it's always um, talked about in the U.S. as something that might happen, doesn't seem to happen. We're now seeing possible um, Department of Justice movement with Google in particular. Um, so I'll have to get you back on the show, Brian, um, because um, I think there's more road to run with that. Um, but for now, um, what are you what are you doing this week? I know you're preparing for this um, this Group M report. Um, is there anything else that you're working on? Yeah, I mean, frankly, the we'll have a forecast coming out very soon for certain um, for the United States, the United Kingdom, um, and our global forecasts all coming out very very soon. So uh, that's certainly my focus at this moment. Very good. Brian Weezer talking to us from Portland, Oregon. He's Global President of Business Intelligence at Group M. Thanks very much, Brian. Thanks very much, Omar. And we're back with Jeremy Lee to talk about the week's ads. But before we do that, we can't not talk about George Floyd and this horrendous, horrendous situation that's happening in the US. And, you know, overnight, we've had, I think, eighth day of protests all over the country. It's not it's beyond the scope of this podcast, quite frankly, to talk about um, all the racial issues in the US and just the tragic events. Um, I do want to point you to a very good column, which um, we published on the website yesterday by Joe Arscott. He's a freelance director. Um, search for it. I'll put a link in the show notes but the headline is the george floyd tragedy raises urgent questions for the industry about race um and she's actually got an interesting background having worked in several countries in her career and just as a as a bame person um in terms it's just such a different experience in terms you know let alone in the uk and the us but in places like the middle east um how people how race is kind of looked at and how you feel as a person of color um it's just it's there never isn't an important time to talk about race in this industry as well as other industries and the world. And it's, it's an interesting one for how brands tackle this as well, Jeremy. I mean, Nike um, is one of the ads that we have on the website and, you know, they've got this ad, uh, brand messaging and you could call it for once don't do it you know play on obviously just do it they're saying don't do it as in don't be quiet about um, seeing um, racism uh, this is by Wyden and Kennedy Portland do you, do you think Jeremy that brands can legitimately they're always wanting to show purpose obviously um do you think they can legitimately show purpose in this area or do you think they should just keep quiet? Um, it's such a difficult um, situation. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not probably the best person to speak about it. Um, the situation is so horrific. I, I think brands need to be very careful where they tread in this area because it's. Um, I'm not accusing any of these brands of trying to make money out of it or capitalise on it, but they are commercial entities and try and 
commercialise something that's such a big problem is is fraught with danger. So um, I just despair that the prospect that a brand will clumsily try and, uh, and get involved in something that they shouldn't be having a conversation about. Yeah, I mean, it's in some cases it's just unavoidable. I mean, <laughs> look at the tech platforms. What's been happening? I mean, um, Twitter finally moving um, to actually not take down any Donald Trump tweets, but actually put warning messages that um, you know this this message may be glorifying violence. I mean, um, thanks Twitter, well done. It's taken a long time, but finally they're doing it. And you know, my personal view is <laughs> nobody's asking Twitter and Facebook, for example to block every single racist thing that everyone does on these platforms. But when you've got a world leader with 81 million followers and they say something as outrageous as that, frankly, you know, you've got to, if there's a place to draw the line, surely that's a good place to start. Um, So well done, Twitter for taking action, Facebook, maybe not so much. Um, But anyway, let's not spend the whole time talking about this. We're going to talk about the ads. And this is another interesting one. This is by campaign against living miserably um this is really interesting they've launched a free google chrome extension that removes coronavirus related content and news from the web browser um it's created by the ad agency adam and eve ddb who already mentioned um this is quite interesting because um they're not they're not suggesting people avoid the news altogether but in terms of um, helping with people's mental health they're, they're saying that people should have an option to avoid um, I suppose um, rather unsettling coronavirus news if they already feel quite vulnerable um, Jeremy what do you make of it com has a history of doing some really amazing creative work not just through Adam and DDB I think they did a, a brilliant campaign through Havas London last year um, encouraging younger men in particular to talk about you know, suicide and things like that um i think this is probably a very good example i know it's been written about how publishers are gonna suffer for brands not um you know, avoiding content around things like covid19 but this is a separate issue i think if people choose that they they're finding the news too depressing then having the option to avoid it isn't such a bad thing what do you think I think it's fascinating. I think we're going to see more and more of this. This is my prediction. We're going to see more and more of this in the years to come where we talk a lot about filter bubbles on social media. But, you know, there is clearly uh, going to be some sort of demand or even an incentive um, for the likes of Google to offer or third party publishers on Google to offer services where people can live in their own filter bubbles online, where you know, it could start off where I don't want to see anything that's risque content, you know, or it can be I don't want to see anything that's around coronavirus or I don't want to read any stories. Um, well, you, you can imagine lots of reasons what people would want to block. Um, I don't know. I, I... I was going to say, what do you think? I mean, this is this, this specific incident is, is addressing mental health, and I think that's reasonable. I think you, you make a very good point that people – just filtering out things they don't want to know about to <clears throat> becomes a slightly uh, more perhaps becomes a slightly more ignorant world where people aren't exposed to things that might counter their worldview and is that good for democracy is that is that is that a good thing because that's a big philosophical philosophical question question so i don't know what do you think, well, I think it's, it's not a new thing in the sense that you know i can nobody's going to tell me what newspaper i want to read and not all newspapers are the same obviously have some have a political bent than others nobody's going to tell me what tv channel to watch so i'm already selecting what media i consume anyway um but it's just having the ability now in the digital age to actually block content which different media is offering it's just an accelerated form of that um at the end of the day yeah let people do what they want to do um but it comes down to i think as a civic culture in society i think we've got to be really careful about you know making educating people to actually be accommodating of views which may be uncomfortable um, you raised the point about democracy, Jeremy. It's really important for democracy that we're all able to talk to each other and have a civilised conversation and understand different points of view. And, yeah, sometimes there's going to be content which I don't like. But let's talk about why I don't like it. Do you think so? it's an area that brands – I'm going to be accepting calm, but do you think it's an area that brands should or will get involved in? Well, it's a, it's a difficult one because, you know, we were just talking about brand purpose and 
there are going to be many issues which just force brands to take a side, you know, such as uh, racism, which side are you on, good or bad? It doesn't seem like a hard choice to most people, I would think. Um, but there are going to be, you know, harder harder issues for brands to grapple with. Um, so it's about, you know, what, what place are you coming from? Can you have an authentic voice on it? And also how toxic, how controversial is this particular issue? There, you know, it's... I think it's just um, it's it's a tricky one, and we're we're nowhere close to actually having broad guidelines. I suppose perhaps that's the route the Walkers is looking to go down with its new ad agency. Perhaps it's going to drop Gary Lineker or something much more much more campaigning. Listener, listeners may remember when um, they tried to do that um, that thing with Gary Lineker on Twitter, where they said, oh, you know, insert your personalised messages," and um, the end. Well, g- Google it. <laughs> but, oh, that's um, a Jimmy Jimmy Savile room. Yeah, right. yeah. And quite awful things. And this is this is the thing about um, interactive digital media. Um, sometimes it can lead you down places you don't expect. Okay, one more ad, and I'm going to let you go. This is Argos. Um, they produced a new ad called Drum at Home, and interestingly, um, they featured um, the ten-year-old's um, girl that they featured in their Christmas ad from last year um, she's back and she's back in an ad which encourages people to get musical at home during lockdown this month argos asked britain could you learn to drum from home this video is set to uh daniel beddingfield remember him um, and the song <laughs> got, gotta get through this um and that's by the and partnership um this is quite interesting bringing back um it was it was quite a, a popular christmas ad at the time um do you th- do you think um brands should do more of this kind of like bring back kind of characters um that had done well before yeah why not i mean i'll, I'll be honest with you i haven't watched that it didn't particularly interest me um yeah it sounds it uh, it was a, it was a lovely christmas ad why not bring bring it back if it was popular sounds sounds fun um, and um, using pots and pans and wooden spoons as sticks and all sorts you can imagine that parents would be actually <laughs> being driven nuts by, but it looks fun in the ad anyway. Um, okay, um, now, Jeremy, we're about to wrap up. What are you up to for the next few days? What are you looking forward to? Uh, what am I looking forward to? Um, Fridays, I don't work Fridays. How about you? Oh, lucky you. What do you do on your Fridays off? <laughs> I sit in a park and drink cider with Howard Brown. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> I just, I just imagine you in quite bucolic surroundings in Kingston, um, with, a, <laughs> with with a pile of tenants. Or, uh, uh, well, that that's good. Um, I've been, um, I've got a baby on the way, um, and um, we've been doing NCT classes on Zoom, uh, which has been um, very interesting. Some of them go on for three hours plus um so you've got to have your dinner beforehand um but it's 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 just really interesting and zoom's good because they've got these breakout rooms and it's it's just really good for things like that uh and by the way listeners listen to last week's podcast on pitches over zoom which is quite a fascinating discussion with the intermediaries that run these processes uh but yes even in my private my personal life you know we're doing a video chat now and it's just video chats all over the place can't wait for them to end (laughs) Well, that's it for another episode. Thank you so much to Jeremy. And thank you also again to Brian Weezer from Group M. Thank you also to Number 8 Studios for the help recording this episode remotely. And to Ben Nonvisborough, our very own Ben, for producing and editing. Remember to subscribe to the Campaign Podcast so you don't miss an episode in the future. I've got links to all the news stories and as we talked about in the show notes, which are at campaignlive.co.uk. Catch you next time. Please stay safe. Bye-bye.